Okay, we're looking here at Luke chapter 23 and um, 44 through 45. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, and the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And that's as far as we're going to get. But uh, that's what that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about that sixth hour. Now, Exodus 10:21, uh, the Lord said unto Moses, "Stretch out thine hand toward heaven." that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. Uh, Many years ago, I had the opportunity to um, accompany a friend of mine who uh, was uh, working for a delivery service. And um, I had an opportunity to go with him to those storage caves here in Kansas City, just off of uh, 435 there. And uh, so I went with him and we entered into these man-made caverns we traveled deep inside uh, that hill or whatever that is over there for quite a ways. And then he asked me, he said, you want to experience something really eerie? And of course, uh, being the adventurous person that I am, I said, no, not really. He said, no, really, this is, this is kind of neat. So what he did was is he stopped the van and then he turned off the engine and he turned off the lights. And immediately we were enveloped in an absolute absence of light and sound. I mean, it was truly, in my experience, a darkness that you could feel. And I remember, you know, taking my hand and doing all that silly stuff. It was just absolutely absence of light and sound. It was very, very eerie. It was actually a darkness that I could, I could say that I felt. Now, I quoted Exodus 10.21 because that's a very similar darkness that was experienced uh, by those folks on, on, on uh, Calvary that day. It was a darkness that just kind of descended upon the world from noon until about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And, uh, of course, it didn't last for three days. It lasted for three hours. But it was a darkness that could be felt. Definitely a darkness that that could be felt. And, you know, that's not going to be the last time that this world's going to experience this kind of darkness. Because just prior to the Lord's return, there's also going to be another great day of darkness that's going to fall upon the earth. In Joel 2, verses 30 through 31, it says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And I think in Revelations, it it talks like the sun being covered in sackcloth. So it's going to be blotted out. The sun is going to be blotted out. Now, so there's going to be another darkness come upon uh, upon the earth. You know, what is Egypt a picture of? It's a picture of the world, isn't it? So Egypt, a picture of the world, experienced darkness, you know, for three days. When Jesus was uh, uh, perishing on the cross, experienced darkness for three hours. And once again, this world is going to experience darkness. Now, of course, you know, if you read about this or you read commentaries and everything, there's always the question is, was this a local darkness or was it a darkness like Luke says here uh, that uh, uh, covered the earth? You know, was it that kind of a darkness uh, over all the earth or was it just a a local darkness that that took place? 
Well, before I address that, I want to say something first. Something else that you might read is uh, they'll tell you, well, that was an eclipse of the moon over the sun. That's, that's what took place. Well, no, that is not what took place. It's not a, it was not a natural occurrence. So I drew a little diagram up here on the whiteboard. It was not a natural occurrence of the moon eclipsing the sun. Of course, when that happens, that's when the moon is in between the earth and the, and the sun. Well, uh, the Hebrews, they go by a lunar calendar. So their month is lunar. All right. So they go by a lunar ca- calendar. And so at the beginning of that month, it would have been what we would call a new moon. And that new moon simply means that the position of the moon and its orbit around the earth in relation to the sun would be in between the sun and the earth. So that would be on a new moon. By the time the 14th of Nisan would occur, the moon's position, like it is now, if you happen to notice last night, we had a full moon. The position of the moon on the 14th of Nisan, the earth would be between the moon and the sun. All right, just like it is now. If you go out, if you went out last night, or if you go out tonight, you're going to see a full moon because now the moon is, I would say, behind the Earth in relation to the sun. That's the situation when Jesus was on the cross. So it could not have been an eclipse of the moon of the sun, could it? Because the moon is all the way here in its orbit. So it's a physical impossibility for the moon to get in the way of the sun. So it's not a it's not a lunar eclipse that was experienced that day. It was a actual supernatural event that took place where the sun was darkened and the light went out starting at, at starting at noon. So that's that. Now, was the darkness a global darkness? Or was it just a local darkness right there in the city of Jerusalem? Well, um, a man by the name of Thallus, I think is how his name is pronounced. He was an early, early historian, and he wrote a three-volume history. He wrote this approximately uh, during the period of time after Christ's resurrection, Okay, around 50 AD, so that's what that's about 20 years. So he worked on this this history of the Mediterranean, and his history uh, covered the period from the Trojan Wars uh, all the way up to about um, 93 AD. All right, so you know that's what he that's what he worked on, and so anyway, he there's this historian that wrote this this history of the region. And um, most, like most ancient things, um, most of his work is lost, but he has been quoted quite often by other sources. And these other sources quote this man, and he talks about an eclipse that occurs that covered the Mediterranean area. All right? So already... That darkness is expanded from Jerusalem to the Mediterranean area. Okay? And uh, so he says that this, this occurred. And uh, so he's been quoted by this. 
And so that's that's one of those things that that's in history that you can find if you want to look for it. There was another Greek historian who lived about 137 AD and he he mentioned the greatest eclipse of the sun occurring during this time. In fact, he said that this eclipse was so great, now notice they call it an eclipse, right? This eclipse of the sun was so great that it spread up to, he called Bithynia and Nicaea. Okay, where in the world is Bithynia and Nicaea? Well, Peter writes to folks who live in Bithynia. Bithynia is what we know of today as modern Turkey. So now that darkness is spreading out even further. Spreading out even further. Uh, Tertullian, I think is his name, a a second century Christian, he was an apologist for Christianity because the pagans were saying, oh, you know, it can't be true, blah, blah, this and blah, blah, that. So he was an early apologist for the Christian faith. And as he presented his arguments against the pagans' criticism in regards to Christianity, and this is one of the things that they said, oh, that can't possibly have happened, that couldn't have possibly happened. Well, this is what he wrote. He says, at the moment of Christ's death, the light departed from the sun, and the land darkened at noonday. And then this is what he said. Which wonder is related in your own annals and is preserved in your archives today? And so he was speaking to folks who were living in Egypt and Rome and places like that. And he says, check out your own records. Because this event is even in your own records. Don't believe me, go check your own your own reports on this matter because it's there you can read it kind of like um, what, what, uh, Trump's uh, press secretary Kelly McEnany yeah remember what she used to do whenever she would hold a press conference she would have this big notebook in front of her and she would quote back to the media you know what they said in order to counter their criticisms and stuff well, that's what he was doing here. He says, go check your own records. This actually happened. This actually happened. Uh, Dr. Paul Mayer, a professor of ancient history at uh, Western Michigan University, he wrote a book called uh, entitled Pontius Pilate. And in his research and his study, he said this phenomena was visible in Rome in Athens and other Mediterranean cities that stretched across the entire sea of uh, the Mediterranean. So it wasn't just a localized event. It wasn't just a localized event. Now, this is what I thought was kind of interesting. Okay, so we're just talking about the Mediterranean and Turkey. We're just talking about that part of the world. Um, in... Uh, There was a Spanish conquistador who wrote a history of Peru. His name is Pedro de Leon. And uh, he was speaking to the Peruvian natives who were telling him some of their lore, some of their stories, some of their legends as he was writing this, this book. And these people he was speaking with 
was telling them of an ancient people who lived even before the Incas that have that tell a story of a day when the sun went out. A day when the sun went out. And on top of this, they also spoke about the rocks clashing together for an earthquake. An earthquake. Another Spanish cleric who lived in between 1500 to 1600, he also questioned, he also wrote a, a story or a history, if you will. And um, he asked the people that he was talking to, trying to, you know, trying to get their history from oral tradition. And they also talked about an ancient people who experienced a day of darkness and a day of rumbling of the earth. And then, I thought this was kind of interesting, a history of uh, a Chinese dynasty, a Han dynasty that existed between 25 AD to 220 AD, so that fits right within the time frame. In China, this dynasty also recorded the sun going out on that particular day. The sun going out. So, was it a local event or was it a global event? Now, of course, you're always going to have your detractors. You're always going to have folks that will argue against this. And, of course, you know, we don't really put our faith in the apologists or do we put our faith in whether the history proves it or not? Quite frankly, every time somebody turns over a shovel full of dirt in that part of the world, it proves the Bible correct. We put our faith in what God's word says. Psalms 33, 4 says, For the word of God is right, and all his works are done in truth. So these folks who do all that research, I'm thankful for them. I am. I'm thankful for the Josh McDowells and who's the latest guy, Case for Christ. Yeah, you know, guys like that. I'm very, very thankful for those men that, that get in there and they dig and they, they go through all of that and they find all these things. I'm very, very thankful for that. But what all these do, we don't put our faith in that. But what all these guys are doing is simply showing to the unbelievers, hey, this book is real. It's truth. What it says is, is right. It happened. It happened. So that's that. Okay, so no, it wasn't a natural occurrence of the moon eclipsing the, the earth, you know, the sun. It was a supernatural event. It was a supernatural event that I believe was global. I believe was global. Now also it says here in Luke 23, 44 through 45, and it was about the sixth hour. Now what is the number six? What does that represent in the Bible? Don't be afraid to answer if you know it. It's man. 
The number of man. Our Lord and Savior was dying for who? For man. So on the sixth hour. And it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Nine is new beginnings, fruit and the, or the fruit. And the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. Now both Matthew and Mark, they also make record of the veil being rent. And both of these gospels give us the wonderful detail that that veil that hung in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place was torn from bottom to the top, top to the bottom, top to the bottom. Again, another act of God, um, something impossible for a man to do, probably, no, it's improbable that any man would do that. Do you think that the high priests or the priests serving in that, do you think they would rip that veil? Well, how about from the bottom to the top? No, probably not. No, they would not dare do that, would they? No, they would not dare rip that veil. In fact, I'll go as far to say this. I bet they wouldn't even dare touch the veil. Because the only time anyone was allowed to go behind that veil was on the Day of Atonement, and only the high priest, after he offered a sacrifice for himself, was allowed to go back there behind that veil. So I'm thinking the only one who ever touched that veil was the high priest when he moved it aside to slip in behind it. Nobody else, I know I wouldn't touch it, nobody else would touch that veil except for the high priest on the day appointed after he made a sacrifice for himself. Do you think his disciples or one of his disciples would have done it? No. They're in hiding. They're in hiding. And besides that, there's no way in the world that they would even get beyond into that sanctuary prior to the Holy of Holies. There's just no way they'd be allowed to get in there. Um, That's a good question. I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. It's pretty... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you would. I imagine it's pretty... it It was a formidable curtain. It was a formidable curtain. Very thick. Very thick. Okay. Yeah. 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 It wasn't. It wasn't just a sheet. It was a formidable piece of material. It really was. So no, I don't think the priests would have done it. How many? How many men do you think it would have taken to do that? No, I don't think. I don't know. I don't know. And I don't think. I know one guy wouldn't have done it. And I don't think the disciples would have done it. So. Yeah, it was torn from the top to bottom. So, what is the veil all about? Why was that veil ripped? What, what is, why was that even put here in the, in the Gospels? Why is that so significant? Why is that so important? Well, like Brian says, well, I'm glad you asked. 
The veil is a type of Christ. And the Bible has a lot of types. A, t- a lot of types. And uh, so what is a type? Well, uh, if you look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1, I'll probably read it before you get there. But Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1, Paul is writing to the Hebrew believers, uh, those who have received Christ as their Savior and are wrestling in their minds about, you know, where's the priesthood fit into this? Where's the temple fit into all this? And so he's writing to them about it. And so here, here we have in Hebrews 10.1, he says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. So Paul refers to it as a shadow. So a biblical type, a definition of a biblical type is an event or persons or objects in the Old Testament that prefigure or shadow Christ or some revelation concerning Christ. Uh, An example of that, and Jesus himself used this type himself when he spoke to the Pharisees, was Jonah. Remember when he said to the Pharisees, the only sign you're going to receive is the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the well's belly, so will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. So Jonah is a type of Christ in his resurrection. So as the fish vomited Jonah out of its belly onto the beach, Jesus will rise again on the third day. So he's a type. He's a type. He's a shadow. He's a shadow. A sha- what is a shadow? You can't really see it. But a shadow, is the shadow the actual thing itself? No, all it is is a silhouette. Right? If you look at a shadow, you might be able to tell the shape of something. You might be able to figure out how big it might be. You, know, you might be able to see some things, but you won't see the details. So it's just a shadow of the real thing. Well, that's what the veil is. It's a shadow. It's a type of Christ. A type of Christ. So in what way is the veil a shadow or a type of Christ? Well, it is a type of his body. Of his body. Um, when he is, when he was here in the days of his flesh, when he was here in the days of his flesh, as Paul talks about in Hebrews 5, 7, you know, we have other New Testament passages that speak about, uh, this, for instance, in John 1, 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. The word dwelt means tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. What is a tabernacle? It's kind of like a tent, isn't it? First uh, Timothy 3.16 And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, 
justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. So here the Apostle Paul is talking about God manifest in the flesh. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. His incarnation. Um... 1 John 4.2 Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that Jesus, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And then here, here is the type, Hebrews 10.20 By a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. So there's the connection. His flesh and the veil. The veil is the type of his flesh. It's a picture of his incarnation. Now, the plain fact of the matter is this. Um, That the Son of God became a man does nothing for a sinner. Does that sound shocking? Just because Jesus... Came in, the, came in the flesh, that does absolutely nothing for the sinner. Why is that? Huh? Okay, well, what brought about the redemption? Huh? Or his death. Right? His death. Right. It wasn't him coming in the flesh that did anything for us. Jesus had to die. That's why he came in the flesh. That's why he came in the flesh. Hebrews 2.9, But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death. Crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Yeah, praise God that God came down in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, but that would have done nothing for you and me until he perished on the cross. Until he perished on the cross. The veil in the temple remained uh, unrent or untorn while Jesus uh, dwelt or tabernacled among men. While Jesus was alive, that veil stayed intact. Why did it stay intact? (laughs) Because he hadn't died yet. He hadn't died yet. He hadn't become the atonement for man's sins yet. And because he didn't die, that veil stayed together. But as soon as he died, what happened to the veil? It got rent. It got torn. Because, well, I'll talk about that in just a minute. You know, the the veil, a careful study of the veil, and I did this when I went to the tabernacle of Moses, but uh, it was it was blue, scarlet, made of fine linen, and had cherubims. His words of grace and truth are blue. They came from heaven. They're words of grace and truth from heaven. His compassion and humanity is scarlet, color of blood. His spotless and righteous life seen in the fine linen. And then his place before God is the cherubims. Because it's the cherubims that surround the throne of God. So in that veil is just a picture of Christ in so many different ways. So many different ways. And that's just a few of them. As I alluded to earlier, the rent veil pictures his redemption 
for mankind when he died on the cross. Hebrews 2.14 and 15, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So the, the veil had to be torn, not from the bottom up, but from the top down. It had to be done that way. It had to be done that way. You see, because man can never work his way to God, can he? The best that man could do was move the veil aside one day of the year and then go in and offer atonement for the people on the mercy seat. That's the best he could do. And that's not really a work on his part, is it? Because he's putting faith in the blood that he's sprinkling on the mercy seat. That that will will cover the sins of the people for that year. So that's not a work. His body is being dragged out by the yeah. 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 They say that they had bells on his on his uh, outfit and a rope around his waist in case God wasn't happy with the guy. And so they could yank him out of there. But the best that the man could do was grab it from the bottom and move it out of the way. And move it out of the way. So the veil still hung there. And it was a reminder to man that. His sin separated him from the Holy God. Because you would not dare go behind that veil without first having offered a sacrifice. You'd be toast. You'd be toast. Only the hand of God could tear that veil from top to bottom. Only the hand of God could do that. When Christ cried out, it is finished, went the veil. Because Christ's sacrifice atoned, appeased God's wrath against sinful man. And so when that veil went, that shows us that God accepted the sacrifice of his son on our behalf. Yeah, praise God. So that veil that hung there in space between the holy place and the rest of humanity represents the body of Jesus Christ. And when when the body of Jesus Christ was ripped in death, so went the veil. So went the veil. So now through the death of Christ, guess what? (laughs) The way is now open to God. To anyone. To anyone. Romans 5.1 Therefore being justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. There's nothing between God and man now. Because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. You know, the more we study the pictures given to us in the Old Testament, the more amazing God is. It's just, it's just incredible. It's just incredible. 
Now, an interesting historical fact about the veil, you know what the Jews tried to do? They tried to sew it back together. They did. In fact, they had to sew it back together several times. They tried to patch it several times, and the patch never held. It always separated. Why is that? You're right. God didn't want it. Luke 5, 36. Remember what Jesus said here? He said, And he spake also a parable unto them, No man putteth a piece of new garment upon an old, if otherwise then both the new maketh a rent, and the piece that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. Yeah. Yeah. You see, the old way has been done away for the new. For the new. They couldn't fix it. No. Though they tried. And that's another lesson. People do it still today. You know, they come to God by faith, trusting in his grace, but yet they try to live their lives to please God by keeping some law or rules. They think that they get closer to God by being legalistic. That's not how you get to close to God. The, the Bible doesn't tell me to be filled with the law. What does it tell me to be filled with? The Spirit. Jesus told the woman by the well, uh, we worship God in spirit and truth. Yeah. You see, I think for the majority of Christians, I'm getting on a soapbox. I think for the majority of Christians today, we either have forgotten or we don't or we're ignorant of how to live our lives in the spirit. And so that's why we run to these rules and try to mend that veil again. Anyway, that's another topic. I'll get on a tangent. Um, so why was, why was the veil rent? Why was it rent? Reason for the rent veil. Um, well, one, to bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, rip, but quickened by the Spirit, capital S. So, what Jesus had accomplished was to open the way of access to God. We can now go to God through Jesus Christ. Whereas before, that wasn't possible. It also means that he presents us before God before God as the fruit of his sacrifice. Remember the story of the father whose son was possessed with a demon, and the demon would either throw the son into the fire or into the water? And what did Jesus say to, say to this, this man? He says, bring thy son hither, bring him to me. In essence, that's what Jesus did with us. He brought us before the Father in his person. Now that's a, that's a deep truth. That's a very deep, rich truth. That Jesus has brought you and me before his Father. 
Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made us both who hath made both one, hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. At one time we were at enmity with God, now because that veil has been torn. We are now friends. Huh? Yeah, Romans 5. Now Now we're reconciled. He's brought us to the Father. It's also to consecrate a new and living way of access to God. Hebrews 10.20 By a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil. That is to say his flesh. You remember what Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 6 on the night of his, um, on that last supper night? What did he tell them? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That veil is now rent, and now we go to the Father by Christ. By Christ. He's opened the way. He's opened the way. A new and living way, according to Paul. A new and living way. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again onto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Folks, <laughs> this is not a dead orthodoxy that we have. It's not some religious ceremonialism that we have. It's not uh, some uh, Nicolaitan system that we have. It is a living relationship with the holy God that we have. What is it that we always preach whenever we go through D1? It's not a religion it's a relationship I hope that knocks your socks off because there are millions of people out there who are approaching trying to approach God through a dead orthodoxy or a Nicolaitan system where the clergy is in control over the laity or some through some sort of legalistic system We have a living relationship with a living God because our living Savior offered himself on the cross. It's also to present us holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Colossians 1.22 In the body of his flesh through death to present you and me holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight you see the high priest before he could go behind that curtain had to offer a sacrifice for himself 
If he didn't offer a sacrifice for himself, guess what would have happened if he dared enter into the Holy of Holies? Yeah. He would have died. He would have died. Talk about Indiana Jones. Romans 3, 24 through 25 says, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Jesus is our propitiation. He is our covering. He is our blood-sprinkled mercy seat. And because he is, that veil has been rent, and we have free access to the Father. That should send, send tingles up and down your spine. Boldly, not brashly. See, Jesus did the unlikely thing. He left heaven, took upon himself the form of a servant, and died in our place. He did the unlikely thing that was impossible for any of us to do for ourselves. He took the penalty of our sin and died in our place. Colossians 2.13 And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him having forgiven you all trespasses blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. The veil has been rent. Okay, so now that the veil is rent, what now? What now? Well, he's obtained eternal redemption. For us. Hebrews 9.12 Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. What does eternal mean? Forever. He's obtained eternal redemption for us. Now, that means we can lose it, can't we? That means we can do something really awful and negate that eternal redemption for us, doesn't it? Is that what it means? No. No matter how rotten you end up becoming, it's eternal redemption. Are you still a sinner? Careful. We're redeemed sinners. I should have asked, do you still sin? You see, God doesn't look at us as sinners anymore. What does he look at us like? Children, sons, daughters. Saints. Saints. Exactly. So we're saints that sin. That's what we are. We're saints that sin. Eternal redemption. Eternal. That's right. Or excommunicated, like we were talking earlier. <laughs> so, what is the holy place that Jesus went into? Well, okay. 
the holy place he went to was heaven, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Remember when Jesus showed himself to Mary Magdalene in the garden after he came out of the tomb? Mary was so excited to see him. What do you think Mary's impulse was? Yeah. Yeah, she wanted to hug him or kiss his feet or something. She was so thrilled to see him. What does he say to her? Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my bre- but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend unto my father and your father, and to my God and your God. I don't know how this works. <laughs> I don't. But Christ had entered heaven had offered his blood before the throne to make atonement for us. Make atonement for us. That's what the Bible says. I don't know how that worked. It just worked. The Apostle Paul, in teaching about this, quoted Psalm 68, 18, that says, Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, Thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. That's Psalm 68, 18. We wouldn't understand what that verse meant unless Paul expounded upon that verse later on in Ephesians 4, 8, where it says, uh, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth, he that descended to the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. So when Christ died on the cross, something amazing happened. His spirit, remember what uh, Jesus told, we talked about the, the thief on the cross. Remember what the promise he gave that thief? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Or what's another name for paradise? And Abraham's bosom, right? Remember the fella in the, in uh, Luke 15 who was in Hades and he could see Lazarus and there's that great gulf. All of the Old Testament saints, both Jews and Gentiles, who believed in the one and only God, that's where they went when they died. They went down into paradise, paradise down here in the earth, separated from Hades. And they had to stay down there. Why? Because this hadn't occurred yet. They were covered by the blood on the mercy seat, but this hadn't happened yet. So when that happened, when Christ died, he went down to paradise, and he says, okay, gang, come with me. (laughs) We're going to heaven together. And so he led captivity, those who were in paradise, those who were in Abraham's bosom, and he released them and brought them with him into heaven and presented them before the Father. Because the veil had been ripped in half. You see, they were at one time covered under the atonement of the animal sacrifices, but Christ came and offered his innocent holy blood, and that took care of it all forever. And now they were free from paradise and entered into heaven. 
Hebrews 9.22, it's a fairly lengthy passage, says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered in the holy places made with hands, right there, which are the figures of the true but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself once and for all it's done it's finished And so he emptied out paradise and he brought all of those Old Testament saints, both Jews and Gentiles, who believed in the one holy God and brought him with him into heaven. Jesus entered into a better tabernacle in heaven and therefore the old is done away, including that veil that hung there. And now again, access to God is open for all, all, who have been purged by the blood of Christ. Jesus Christ is now a high priest. And he now represents us before God because of that torn veil. We don't need a high priest anymore. I'm going to say it. We don't need a pope. We don't need a bishop, cardinal. We don't need a holy man. We don't need a pastor. Hebrews 9.24, For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Jesus Christ is our mediator in heaven. We don't need to go to somebody else as a go-between. And yet so many people do. So many people do. Well, yeah, not to get too far into it, but that's just the way I was raised. That's the way it was presented to me. Until I got into the Word of God, somebody showed me differently. But it's, you know, it's just not, it's just not that faith. There's many, many faiths that are. There's even Baptist faiths that are that way. So, and I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm thankful for our pastor Brian. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say. You know, uh, he's here to, to serve us, to help us, to aid us. He's a good man, and I wouldn't hesitate to go with, to him. But he's not my mediator, right? He's not my go-between. I don't need to go to Brian in order to go to the Father. Jesus Christ has opened that way for me, right? Um, Paul says these things are shadows of good things to come. Good things to come. Do you think the law gives life? No, only Christ gives life. Galatians 3.21, is the law then against the promise of God? God forbid. 
For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. No, I have life, I have eternal life because of Jesus Christ, not by keeping a law. Sacrifices of animals won't do it. Hebrews 11, and every, high, every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Now, a lot of folks don't do animal sacrifices anymore, but they think that they can atone for their sins by doing some church work or giving a certain amount of money. That's not how it works, guys. It's not how it works. Can the law make anyone perfect before God? Hmm. Hebrews 7.18 For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and profitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect. But the bringing in of a better hope did. By which we draw nigh to God. See, that's pretty cool if you stop and think about it. We don't have to clean up our act in order to approach God. We can go to God with all of our warts and with all of our sins and still be received. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus Christ. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly, not brashly, boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time and need. Praise God for the torn veil. Praise God for the... You know what the only thing... You know, the, you know what is the only thing that bars man from God? Is it? What's the only... He's covered the sin. That issue is... Okay, that's sin. Huh? Okay, alright. How about this? John 3.18 He that believeth on him is not condemned... But he that believeth not is condemned already. You know what the one thing that bars man from God? His unbelief. His unbelief. God's taking care of everything else. It's now man's choice. Do I believe what God has done for me in tearing that veil? Or do I still try to sew it back together? Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the pictures in your word. We thank you, Father, for these sights that help us to understand uh, your great grace, help us to understand your amazing wisdom, help us to understand your redemptive work on our behalf. Praise you for Jesus Christ and sending us the spirit that makes all of this alive and fresh to us. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.